Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Classicist is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ilya Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, this is our final conversation prior to Election Day. So with that in mind, I want to sort of synthesize a couple of pieces that you've written recently to take a look back at the last four years as a way of probably thinking about the next four years and beyond, because if Donald Trump wins, this will obviously all inform his second term. And and if he loses, this will still inform what the Republican Party becomes in the future. So uh, let's start here. Donald Trump as commander in chief. So you wrote recently that a big part of Donald Trump's thinking about foreign policy comes down to, I'm quoting you here, the United States would no longer adhere to every aspect of the 75-year-old post-war order it created, close quote. And what makes it so interesting is that there would likely have been a decent-sized shift in foreign policy from Barack Obama to any Republican president. But the odds are better than not, I think, that it may not necessarily have been this dramatic or even necessarily in this direction. So what did Donald Trump bring to foreign policy that was new? Well, that question um, entails two aspects in an answer. One, psychological, uh, public relations, manner, etc. So we know he was not going to be sober and judicious, and he was not subject to the sort of Council on Foreign Relations pressures that say to a president, you just can't do that. The State Department would be an open revolt if you moved that embassy. If you got out of the Paris Climate Accord, you wouldn't know. The Allies would be, he, that had no effect on him. So he was liberated because he didn't know any of those people, anything. He didn't particularly think they were so smart. And he said things, you know, they, they, they haven't figured a way out of Afghanistan. They gave me missiles in Korea when I got here and stuff. So he had a, some legitimate beefs about their, their own record or lack of which. And then the second thing he did was there was four, three or four areas that it just complete recalibration that Republican presidents either could not or would not do, partly because a lot of them, their supporters were compromised with China. So he rebooted one with China. And he said, they're not a friend. They're not going to democratize. The more we appease them, the more wealthy and leisure they become. They don't all of a sudden have town halls or more likely to use those resources to squash uh, Hong Kong democracy, wipe out Tibetan culture, uh, round up more of the Uyghurs, etc. And we're going to have to deal with their asymmetry in trade because it hollowed out the American interior. And that, no, I, I can't think of any Republican who would have done that. And second, it was very radical. He said in the Middle East, you know, the Palestinians for 75 years said they're refugees. Everybody's a refugee at at one point, and then they cease to be refugees. So, the, and it's time now to move on, and we're not going to give them seven hundred million and funnel it through the crooked UN and enrich all their elite. And we're just going to be very nice and say we want you to participate, but this is essentially between nation states, and Israel is going to cut deals with moderate uh, Arab regimes, and they're going to do it because they're also terrified of the Obama foreign policy that empowered Iran deliberately so and and its appendages like Hezbollah and the Assads. So that that changed everything. And there was a lot of radical things that entailed in that policy. You know, the Assads are not going to get back the Golan Heights. The embassy will be in Jerusalem permanently. 
I don't have any problem with being you know, openly pro Netanyahu. So there were things that uh, he did that other presidents just wouldn't have done, and that has changed the Middle East. He was able to do that because he also pressed for a uh, radical expansion of uh, gas and oil. We're up to almost 3 million barrels a day more than when he entered office, and even more dramatic with natural gas. So that essentially made the Middle East impotent in their traditional you know, we're going to sanction oil, we're going to embargo oil, we're going to boycott, whatever they do, they had no effect on the United States anymore. So we had a lot of latitude as the world's largest gas and oil producer we never had before. And so that was that was very different. And then he also tweaked that and he said, there's not going to be any more expeditionary uh, incursions, uh, insertions of troops into the Middle East, especially. And that meant no more bombing of Libya, no more uh, getting on the ground in Syria in a, in a sizable fashion, trying to get out of Afghanistan, not going back into whatever. And that was a businessman's logic. It was in a cost-benefit analysis. This hasn't resulted in a profit or an advantage either to us in particular or to the, the region in general. Mm-hmm. So those areas were very different. I don't think he can re- reboot with Russia until after the election. But he missed an op- we've missed an opportunity to use Russia as a foil with China. Maybe we'll be able to do that. And then finally, every president whined an ankle bit the Europeans about their parasitical use of American military power to support the alliance. Why then they, they wanted it both ways. They didn't want to pay their 2% promises of GDP investments in military uh, affairs. And then they wanted the United States to pay a third of their budget while they said we were hegemonic or imperial or neocolonial, all that stuff. So he just said, you know, if you want to cut deals with the Russians and you don't want to pay your fair share, I don't think NATO's sacrosanct. I don't think any president either could or would do that. So those were four areas that he really shook things up. When it comes to shaking things up, Victor, there there has been uh, a noticeable difference or, or evolution, I guess, in in you, I think, over the course of four years when it comes to Trump's tone and demeanor. Because early on when we were talking, you'd issue a lot of the same disclaimers as other people, that you, you like a lot of the policies, a lot of the results, but you weren't always comfortable with the things the president said or the way he said them. And uh, while it's not as if certainly you've given him a hall pass since then, I sense that over time, you started to appreciate a certain utility to the the brash style, the brash way the president does business. Is, is that fair? No, that's more than fair. Um, more than fair. Because, look, when he came in, I wasn't sure. I know what he had said, but I didn't really think he was going to take on the courts and the Democrats and try to build a wall and and try to make Mexico garrison the border. And I didn't really know what he could do with, in the Middle East or with China. I like the idea of restoring vitality to the hollowed out working class. I didn't know if he could do it. I didn't know whether he'd be able to green light um, gas exploration on federal lands or get these type of jurists he, he's nominated. But he did. And the more that he did in that weird arithmetic, the more he achieved, the more you were willing to tolerate the bombast that went with it because it 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 wasn't just you know, it wasn't, well, why do you defend a guy who says little Marco or Crooked Hillary or Sleepy Joe when he, he just came into office and he's an open borders guy and he 
He just did the same council, on, as I said, council on foreign relations in the Middle East stuff. So that was one aspect. The other was, uh, I did think there was such a thing as a honeymoon, but when you got a president that the moment he's inaugurated, you got Madonna outside saying they want to blow up the White House, and you got 61 House members that impeach him, vote to impeach him before he's even really been there a week. And then you've got the deep state leaking private confidential phone calls of the Mexican president or the Australian prime minister. And then you've got Rosa Brooks and foreign policy saying, you know, we either got to get rid of this guy by uh, impeachment or 25th Amendment or, heaven forbid, a military coup. That was all within months. And then we were in March and there was Robert, April, May, we started the Russian hoax and and then the Trump derangement. So it was... I realized he was in an existential war and these people were not going to give him a honeymoon. They hated him. And they, as I said before, they interpret his magnanimity or quietness as weakness. So he, he returned it in kind or with megatonnage. I, I want to give you a hypothetical, which is it's not very likely, but it is plausible. And I find this attractive as a topic just because no one seems to be discussing it. So you can see here as we're talking on election eve even if you just take all the mainstream polls at face value you can see paths by which donald trump wins re-election independent of that you can also see a path not that unlikely at all in which democrats take back the senate so it's hard to remember this now but there was a theory early in trump's presidency i remember seeing a well-known conservative make this argument at an event once that the most likely outcome of a Trump administration was that it was going to end up looking like the latter days of Arnold Schwarzenegger's tenure as governor of California. That is, that this guy was so bent on making deals and that he didn't have a ton of deeply held political principles that he'd just start freelancing. And who knew what kind of things he'd signed on for that would turn conservatives hair white? Now, of course, we have not seen that really at all. But I wonder, Victor, in a, in a slightly topsy-turvy world, where Donald Trump gets reelected and has a Congress, both houses of which are controlled by Democrats. Do you think he finds places to work with them, or does this end up looking more like the the second Obama term, in, in the sense that the president is really leaning into executive authority and just sort of swatting away Congress as a nuisance? Uh, I think he's going to do the Obama. Obama gave him the blueprint with pen and phone executive orders, which I don't think is a good idea, but he loses the Senate. When you look at these areas that we just discussed, to what degree, I mean, I thought that the Iran deal would have to go through a treaty, even maybe the Paris Accord. But the Democrats have this propensity of blowing up protocols, thinking that they're going to be in power in perpetuity. And then they get shocked and anguished when somebody uses their methods for different ends. So that's what's happened. So getting back to what his signature accomplishments have been, he can do all he wants foreign policy. As long as he just says this agreement's not a, a treaty, and it probably not, it won't be a major treaty. So, and with NAFTA rebooting of NAFTA, he he really undercut the Democratic base that they had no choice but to sign on to it. And so the wall, we know that he can't get that. He could they they've tried to cut off funding for the wall, but he was able to shift around fun, funding from all these different uh, appropriations for different cabinetcies, and he's got he'll have four hundred miles done and he'll keep trying to push that through executive orders i don't think they can uh they can touch any of his china policy i don't think they can if they revoke his tariffs or they have something he can veto it 
The only thing that's major, as I see, is that they're not going to approve one judge. So that's dead. And we won't have any judges appointed at all. And they won't mind a bit if after four years, you know, or at least two years, there's 150 vacancies. That's what they think. That'll be fine in their way of thinking. But what they won't be able to do is uh, pack the court. They won't be able to bring in extra states. They won't be able to uh, get rid- help that they can stop. He can stop the momentum to get rid of the electoral college. And we'll see if they want to get rid of the filibuster. Let me ask you this. Between the unusual way in which this election is being held, uh, the margins of the relevant swing states, in the process by which the votes will be tallied, the entire country is girding itself at this point for the prospect that we won't know who won this election on the night of, and, and maybe for a significant amount of time afterwards. And maybe this ends up being fought out in the courts. And because of the president's temperament, there's been a lot of preemptive hand wringing about how this could go down. What would your advice be to President Trump about how to handle things if we wind up in a period of prolonged uncertainty about the outcome of the election? What we know is, um, and we've seen, we saw a glimpse of it in 2000. What they're, what people are doing right now, they're preemptively saying that Donald Trump will try to steal the election, that the Joint Chiefs will have to mar- frog march him out, that Biden, all that stuff we've heard. But that's just a preemptive smokescreen because we know what really will happen. They're going to unleash in that 10 or 12 day period where, you know, Pennsylvania is being counted or maybe Michigan and Wisconsin, they're going to unleash, i.e. with plausible deniability, they're going to unleash BLM, Antifa. They're going to go all through the nation and, and they're going to try to intimidate people. You know, if you're a federal judge and you've got to make a decision and a guy is burning down your, local food market makes that that has consequences so they're going to create a climate in which donald trump then has to say well we're not i've got to restore order or i've got to do this or that and they want him to 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 get angry and to reply in kind but the the democratic playbook thus far with trump is has been to demand that he perform or say or do something according to perfect protocol why they just go completely crazy so if he says i don't know if i was going to concede until i can tell that the voting has been accurate they go crazy even though hillary clinton just tells the nation the world that under no circumstances should joe biden ever concede and nobody said a word nobody said a word when stacy abrams i think she still calls herself governor and so they have all of these uh, asymmetrical little protocol. He didn't believe in any of it, but for I'm just thinking about not what's fair, but what's in his own interest. And what's his, in his own interest is to let the process play out, let the votes be counted, to get a bunch of poll watchers there and make it as transparent, because I think the federal du- judiciary now is 50-50. The Supreme Court is in his favor, and he's got right on his side. I think he's going to win. So on these, uh, we'll see. And what you're referring to, Troy, is that we're going to see, I think, on Election Day that Donald Trump has somewhere between 100 and 150 or 200,000 vote lead in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin. And then we're going to count up 
the Democratic registration and the Republican registration of mail-in advanced voting, we're going to see if you counted every single Democratic vote, would it be enough to win him the election? And if it's not going to be enough, I think people on both sides are going to say, you know, it's pretty likely that he won the election, but we'll have to wait and see. My final question for you, whether President Trump loses this year or is termed out four years from now, the moment is arriving sooner or later where the Republican Party is going to have to figure out what it is in the the post-Trump era. And you and I both know, Victor, there is a contingent within the party that is clearly hoping for the new heart ending, where they wake up and realize it was all a dream and they can revert to the status quo ante, just go back to the way that things were before Trumpism. So from that, two separate but related questions. First, how likely is that? And second, how, how advisable would that be to abandon the principles that have differentiated this era from the Republican ones that came before? Well, I mean, it's not going to happen. It, they're delusional, the never-Trumpers. I mean, they keep writing little articles saying, well, any Republican would have, been, would have appointed all these judges. And I'm thinking, yeah, but who was going to win in 2016? Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz was not going to get six to eight million working class people in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin to, to come out and vote. They were either were not going to vote, they were going to vote for Hillary. And so they have no credibility past or present. They don't have no formula that, that how they're going to win again. I mean, they hadn't won the, the popular vote in four out of the last five elections. Republicans hadn't won 51% since 1988. Not that they're going to do it this time, but they had no formula, no agenda that was appealing to the working classes. They had no idea how ridiculous they looked. They were all in this New York, Washington corridor. They got on the Sunday talk shows. They gave all these little cute analyses. And then they never went out in the middle of the country. And you go out in the middle of the country, I'm just speaking as somebody who was raised in a Democratic family of whose members I all disagree with, but they have no idea the contempt of people had for that blue stocking uh, golf course stereotype. And unfortunately, the candidates that they were nominating for, for I just don't see a, poly, a, a, a party of Bob Dole and, and Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney appealing to very much anybody. And that's not, that's the side uh, question, Troy, from the water under the bridge. And it's not under the bridge, really, to tell you the truth, because you can't have these grandees take six, eight million dollars from these hard leftists and then openly say, listen, you useful idiots, we want you to run ads. And then we want you to go to these two new venues and attack all of the uh, people on your party. And we want to do it on the theory that all the things that you all preach to us for 20 years, oh, we need originalist judges. Oh, we've got to do something about abortion. Hmm. Let's try to get... Uh, some sanity back in the schools. Let's have charter schools. Let's, we have too many regulations. Let's have a tax cut. We need more gas and oil. Let's, let's be more pro-Israel. Let's uh, do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden say, I renounce all that. Donald Trump's finger, I smell his scent on it. I see a fingerprint on one of those issues. That's it. It nullifies it. And I'm just going to now not just, I could see it if they wanted to walk away and say, you know what, I got to take a hiatus. I'm just going to check out, cool it for about four years. But they didn't. All of a sudden, they went on MSNBC. They went on CNN. They attacked. I'm, I have a personal stake. I got a, what, Gabriel Schoenfeld wrote 1,600 words 
basically saying I was a Nazi propagandist. And so these are nasty, mean people. And when David Frum writes an article saying that, or suggesting that maybe Melania has not come out of the White House after her kidney operation because Trump is a wife beater and she needs time for her bruises to heal. you got a pretty unhinged group. Or I don't need to go into Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin territory. But the idea that these guys, after helping burn down a presidency, are going to pull up in their fire engines and say, well, it's all over now. We're here to help. It's not going to happen. There's ne- no way in the world that that working class that you see in those rallies are going to flock to a party that a person like Bill Crystal has anything to do with. And so, or Jeb Bush, it's not, it's just not going to happen. But, or Paul Ryan, what could happen is you would think of Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio the other night sound like he's had a come to Jesus moment, or maybe a Ted Cruz rebooted. There are people in the party that have decided that on issues like trade and China and the border and the reindustrialization of the United States. And, you know, I've had a change of heart on uh, the Iraq war. Not, I would, I'm not sure I would change my attitude given the, the post 9-11. But the idea that you're going to go on to a massive expedition and you're going to remove a foreign leader who's a dictator, who's a genocidal monster, and then as soon as you've done that, you're going to take victory locks about how brilliant was your three-week victory. And then a year later, you're going to say, all these idiots ruined my beautiful war, and I'm checking out. When you've got, you know, 150,000 Americans over there fighting for their lives and all these friends, uh, they were former associates of mine. That's what soured me on the neocons is they all checked out. They said, you know, they screwed it up. I'm not supporting this. I'm done. And I'm thinking, well, you were the one that signed these letters in 1998 and 2002 to go into the Middle East with your project for the new American century. And now all of a sudden, you should go tell Bill Smith from Bakersfield that you decided it was a bad idea or that they didn't do exactly what you had advocated because he's over there in Fallujah. And, and so I guess that really soured me on that group. And uh, it was sort of what Matthew Ridgway said, the only worst, there's only one thing worse than fighting a bad war, and that's losing it. And that's what really got... So I don't think they have any credibility. I don't think they have any... just not going to happen. I like them. I have no personal animus against that group in the Republican Party. If I saw George Will, I'd be very happy to talk to him. I like him. I think he's done a lot of good in his writing. But the idea that George Will is going to reappear on Sunday mornings and tell us who to vote for, whom to vote for, it's not going to happen. You've been listening to The Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hansen. Remember, you can read all of Victor's work at victorhansen.com, and he's on Twitter at VD Hansen. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Thank you.